and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Scott Clark. Today on Office Hours, we're talking with the Reverend Dr. Guy Waters, professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, and Duke University, where he earned his Ph.D., and studied the new perspectives on Paul firsthand from one of its leading proponents. He is the author of Justification and the New Perspectives on Paul, The Federal Vision and Covenant Theology, and co-editor with Gary Johnson of By Faith Alone, Answering Challenges to the Doctrine of Justification. All these volumes are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, at wscal.edu. Edu. Hi, Guy, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. You're on campus to teach uh, a short-term course. You're here this weekend, and then you'll be back in April. Is that right? That's right. That's right. It's a one-hour course, and the focus of the course is justification in the epistles of Paul. And we're going to be working letter by letter through Paul's letters and seeing what he has to say about justification. If I can't be there, I'll find a way to to at least hear hear some of this material. There are hardly more important topics in contemporary New Testament studies Hmm. than the the doctrine of justification. How did you come by your interest in the doctrine of justification in Paul? Well, my background in academic study was in New Testament, and specifically the study of Paul. When I was a graduate student at Duke, I worked under— faculty who were and are leading proponents of what's called the new perspective on Paul. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And that was, for me, it was a matter of academic study. I was trying to come to terms with what it was and what it wasn't. But it really wasn't something in the PCA churches that I was part of in North Carolina. It wasn't something that was in the church where I was. Well, I graduate and in As far as I'm concerned, this has been a wonderful academic chapter of my life, and I'm putting it to a close, and then I'm getting ready to open another, teaching at a Christian college in Jackson, Mississippi. And I come to Jackson, uh, ready to start my courses, and I'm starting to hear everywhere in the PCA in central Mississippi uh, the new perspective, what is this? Uh, It was a major topic of conversation. Uh, Not where we were, of course, the people were sympathetic to it, but there were some who were advocating it, and they were uh, stirring up some trouble and discussion in the church. So uh, that's that was my introduction to it there. One of the things that I have heard over the years since this has become a topic of discussion, and particularly as it has impinged on the Reformed and Presbyterian churches in uh, North America and mm-hmm. elsewhere, is I thought we settled all of this. I thought that there was a, a medieval church with a particular doctrine of justification that came to expression at the Council of Trent. There's a Protestant doctrine of justification shared by, in in its basic elements, the Lutheran and Reformed Reformation churches and theologians, and it's basically settled, and now it all seems to be up in the air. So uh, how did we come to a point in uh, particularly where um, even, quote-unquote, conservative New Testament scholars are advocating what seems like a fairly revolutionary approach to reading Paul, and then as a consequence of that, 
a fairly revolutionary doctrine of justification, at least revolutionary relative to the Reformation. Right. No, and you're you're absolutely right. It is it's a puzzling question. It's a head scratcher. And I think part of the answer is found in the fact that when you look at the academic discipline of New Testament studies in most colleges and universities, New Testament studies from its very beginnings in the historical critical tradition uh, separated itself from any moorings in classical Protestant confessional theology. And that has given soil from which Mm. movements such as this can grow, and there's a quite an emphasis on novelty and freshness in exegesis and interpretation in the discipline, and so all the more so. Now, that still doesn't answer the question, why would folk in conservative reform circles come into contact with this, much less come into contact with it sympathetically? And I think to answer that question, you have to look at the life and the career of Bishop N.T. Wright. Hmm. Uh, Wright is he's a very capable scholar. He's an eloquent speaker, and he's a man who's been very active in his church, the Church of England, where he holds office. And Wright has good credentials as a New Testament scholar. He is, within that discipline, very conservative, and he's, he's done work I think we could find much to appreciate mm-hmm. in defending the historicity of the Gospels, uh, the resurrection, and so on. However, he's come to embrace what we've come to know as the new perspective on Paul, and because he identifies himself as, of course, conservative within the discipline— but more so, he labels himself evangelical, and he labels himself reformed, because his New Testament work puts a great deal of emphasis on covenant and the unity between the Testaments. Guys in our circles have, un- very understandably, uh, turned to right in his work and have mm-hmm. said, maybe there's something here. So I, if I had to answer the question, why is it that we're sitting here having this discussion today, I think the influence of N.T. Wright can't be underestimated. Is it the case that the new perspectives on Paul, because it, it encompasses a variety of, of approaches right. within a sort of a boundary, mm-hmm. is it the case that it really is brand new, or were there antecedents to what Bishop Wright is doing, and how far back do those antecedents go? Well, there is nothing new under the sun, and what's new about it is it, it, it's a configuration. That's the newness of it. But when you break it down into its component parts, uh, there really isn't anything terribly new. Uh, the thing that has occasioned most concern in our circles is the insistence that justification, uh, and this is my description, Mm -hmm. Wright would would certainly balk at it, but when you study his writings, what we end up with is a justification that is a process and that is based in part upon the work of the Spirit in us, Mm -hmm. that is uh, infused righteousness. And uh, Wright has categorically rejected imputed righteousness. Now, he claims to get to the same place that imputed righteousness gets by a different way, and uh, others and I are not quite so sure he's, he's traveled that path. So that in itself isn't new, though the packaging itself is new. This, for all its claims to newness, is essentially the lines of debate as they were in the 16th century mm. with the appropriate modifications. Now, 
one of the antecedents to the contemporary discussion was, is an essay by mm-hmm. Christer Stendhal mm-hmm. in which he complained about the introspective conscience of the West that in, in essence what particularly Lutheran and Protestant interpreters of the New Testament have done is to read back into Paul the questions and crisis they inherited from Martin Luther. Is Stendhal the first person to suggest that? And and what's been the result of, of that essay? Well, it's been a very influential essay, and your description of it is entirely accurate. Stendhal argued very pungently and concisely that the tradition of the Protestant doctrine of justification was essentially founded upon Luther's anguish of conscience and Augustine's anguish of conscience. And it was his judgment that the doctrine of justification was more a salve to relieve them of their pains of conscience than it was anything reflected in Paul's writings themselves. And the only historical precedent that Stendhal cites in that essay that I'm aware of, or two essays really, is he said, well, when you compare the Western Church and the Eastern Church, the Eastern Church just doesn't seem to be as concerned with issues of sin and guilt and to be relieved of guilt. And I'm not an historical theologian. I can't comment on that. Uh, but nevertheless, that I mean, was— that, That's basically true, yes. but it's true for some very specific reasons that don't have, I would say, a lot to do with biblical exegesis, but with various, I think, philosophical influences on the on the Eastern Church that make— the notion of sin and declaration of righteousness and all of that somewhat less important mm. because they're on a trajectory toward, you know, theosis is the word they use, mm-hmm. and what that means is a is a matter of some disagreement, but they're really about sanctification and glorification, and justification isn't really the issue for them that it is for us. Now, whether they're reading Scripture correctly, well, that's another matter. That's right. And uh, Stendhal was hardly uh, make, beating a path down to Constantinople. I think he was <laughs> looking for some shred of, of historical background for what he was trying to do. But his project was, was very different uh, from what much of the Christian Church has done in approaching Paul, uh, in urging what's essentially a sociological approach to Paul mm. uh, rather than a soteriological approach to Paul primarily. Now, even in that, Stendhal had antecedents in historical criticism going back a generation or two, so he wasn't saying something that was brand new. Even in in the 19th century, there are 19th century German Mm -hmm. liberals who essentially anticipated some of the same criticisms that that Stendhal made of the Reformation. That's right. That's right. And the thrust of his uh, point is that Paul did not experience a conversion— He was not converted on the Damascus Road. He was called. Now, of course, as classical Christians, we would say, well, he was called and he was converted. It's never been an either-or, but he made it into an either-or. And what then becomes the essence of Paul's message, what sets him apart from his Jewish fellows? Well, Stendhal says a couple of things. One, his affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, Lord, and second, that the people of God are now constituted around Jesus as Messiah. That's the defining feature of God's people, uh, not the keeping of the Mosaic law. So it was, to be sure, Christological and eschatological to a degree, 
But when it came down to brass tacks, how was it that you identified the church? How was it that you identified non-believing Jews? Stendhal pressed identity, and he said it was that conjunction, that complex of concerns, that it was at the heart of Paul's gospel. So he really sets the trajectory to saying what Paul is about is about understanding who Jesus is. Well, no debate there. But what that means for Paul's message, for Paul's gospel, is a new identity relative to those who are outside the church. And it's really that road that the new perspective develops and follows uh, with some consistency. And then E.P. Sanders comes along and says, listen, because of our fascination with the questions that Augustine and Luther are asking, we've completely misunderstood the nature of Second Temple Judaism, the, the, the Judaism that was present in the life of Jesus and in the life of Paul, and we've read into Second Temple Judaism concerns and doctrines they didn't have or teach. And so in order to understand Paul correctly, we need to rethink what the Jews were saying around Jesus and Paul. And, and so mm-hmm. what, is, what is Sanders' claim then mm-hmm. about what the Jews were actually saying? Well, Sanders—and this really gives credibility— to, to the thesis, because he was really the first in a while as a, a non-Jewish scholar himself who combed the sources, three, three groups of sources, really, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Apocrypha, and Pseudepigrapha, and the early earliest layer of the rabbinic literature. And he studies them at, at great length, and he concludes that first-century Judaism, Judaism at the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul, uh, was essentially agreed on the way to salvation. And he calls this covenantal nomism, hmm. and uh, he expresses it by the catchphrase, you, you get in by grace, you stay in by works. And he argued then, well, because of the priority of grace in that setup, Therefore, first-century Judaism is a gracious religion. Well, then, where does that put Paul? Because historically—and this is where the doctrine of justification comes into play—we're justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. And it's been understood that, well, by works of the law, Paul is speaking to the situation of most Jews in his day, that is, unbelieving Jews, who were trusting in performance uh, So, uh, to, to credit them before God. Well, if you accept Sanders' thesis that we've got it wrong on first century Judaism, well, it's back to the drawing board. And Sanders tried to put forward a thesis that made sense of Paul, and it's very complex, and people really haven't followed it. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where, for 30 years, we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. But that's where Wright steps in, because he's a very capable communicator. He essentially says that Sanders' thesis about Judaism is a given. There's no going back. 
So on the basis of that, how are we to make sense of Paul's conflict with Judaism? And he proceeds to reformulate the doctrine of justification accordingly. Uh, What he says is that justification in the present is a matter of identity. How do you know who belongs to the people of God? Paul's answer to that question is faith is the badge or identity marker of a Christian, not Mosaic law observance. Now, where Wright has some plausibility is that he goes on to say, well, of course there's a salvific component to justification. That isn't really what Paul means by justification in the here and now. He's looking ahead to justification in the future, and it's in the future that justification means what most Christians have understood it to mean, something to do with salvation. Hmm. But it's at that point that Wright urges that the ground or basis of justification is, yes, Christ's work for us in part, but also the Spirit's work in us mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that that's as troubling as what he's uh, arguing that justification in the here and now is. So for Wright, justification is partly about God's vindication of himself, and partly in this life, particularly, about boundary markers, mm-hmm. who's in and who's out. So it has a sociological definition in this life, and it has a what we might call a theological definition at the last judgment. And then, of course, when you get to the last judgment, the basis of God's declaration about us isn't what Christ has done, at least it's not entirely mm-hmm. what Christ has done for us. It's partly on what we might say Christ is doing in us or has done in us, which from, a, again, a classical Protestant point of view, is essentially a capitulation of the entire Reformation, because either Jesus obeyed for us in order to be our righteousness, and that righteousness is credited to us and received through resting and receiving in him and his finished work alone, or it's partly on the basis of, of our sanctity, and of course our sanctity involves our cooperation with grace, and now you're mm-hmm. back to the, the meaning, then, of the phrase, works of the law. And so then, what happens, and some critics now of N.T. Wright have asked this question, and I don't know that there's been an answer, what happens if some of the first century rabbis actually believed in the very thing that the Reformation rejected, and that Paul was rejecting something very similar to what the Reformation rejected, and that is salvation by grace and cooperation with grace. What I don't think N.T. Wright understands, I don't know that Stendhal really understood that, and it's clear that Sanders doesn't get this at all, and that is there's a a middle way, if you will, between Pelagianism, bare Mm -hmm. obedience to the law, our bare obedience to the law, and grace— And the middle way is the way that the medieval church took of grace beginning, and then we cooperate with grace to complete the project. What if that's taking place in the first century? Hmm. What if there were rabbis saying that? Mm -hmm. And there have been scholars that have suggested that. Right. And I'm reminded, as as you were talking, uh, 
Dick Gaffin in a review of, of Ride, a very good review in the Westminster Journal a number of years ago, quotes Charles Hodge, uh, professor of theology before New Testament at Princeton Seminary. And I love the quote. He said, it's, I don't really fear the ghost of Pelagius. It's the ghost of semi-Pelagius <laughs> that I fear. Yeah. And in, in some sense, in at least looking at the first century, are there proto-Pelagians running around in Judaism? No. Are there semi-Pelagians running around in first-century Judaism galore? And, and that's really the target of, of Paul in his epistles. He's not addressing pure pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps Pelagianism. Yeah. He's addressing the kind of semi-Pelagianism that you've just outlined. And when Paul is describing the difference between justification by faith in Christ, faith alone, and justification by works of the law, just put it anachronistically, he's describing the difference between semi-Pelagianism and Augustinianism. He's not describing the difference between Pelagianism and Augustinianism. So by resetting the table the way that Stendhal began to do and the way that uh, E.P. Sanders does and Tom Wright does, by resetting the table that way and and Dunn and others, there are a lot of people Mm -hmm. doing this, they've changed the, the premise, really, of Paul's argument. And what the response wants to do is say, well, no, wait a minute. The the premise that you're putting forward, that the situation you're describing is actually not entirely accurate. In fact, it may be quite inaccurate. And so the premise of the whole new perspectives on Paul movement and then the related movements that come from it, it's actually a false premise. Mm-hmm. And And maybe it's the case that the Reformation wasn't as misguided as – We've been told, and as a number of, I think, younger Reformed people have been led to believe, mm-hmm. that uh, maybe Luther did know how to read the New Testament in context. Right. Maybe Calvin did know how to read the New Testament in context. Maybe they knew something about what the rabbis had been saying, and maybe the ideas they were combating in uh, relative to the Roman communion and the medieval theologians, maybe those weren't so far away from what Paul was actually dealing with. That's right. And if, if you pick up uh, Sanders' Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which is his, his exhaustive survey of, of these first-century Palestinian sources, and, and read it cover to cover, then I, I think the pattern that emerges—and and I'm basing this on, on what Sanders himself has quoted and yeah. his own analysis—I would say Paul would look at that and he wouldn't change a word of what he had said. Mm-hmm. In other words, what Sanders has described is essentially a semi-Pelagian religion, and it was that that was in the crosshairs of Paul when he was writing about justification. And when you say semi-Pelagianism, just so the listener is clear, mm-hmm. what we're talking about is a religion of grace mm-hmm. and cooperation with grace. Right. The, the people that Paul was facing as he's writing to the Galatians are not people who are saying, you don't need Jesus. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is, sure, you need Jesus, and it's the and that kills you every time. That's right. And I think what many New Testament scholars have done, and little background to this, you have to understand that the scholarship of first century Judaism leading into the mid-20th century was conducted primarily by German scholars on the eve of World War I. Mm. And Judaism came off, frankly, caricatured. It came off looking pretty poorly, uh, in uh, our terms, Pelagian. And that wasn't a fair representation of it. So understandably, uh, Sanders and others in Train have have come in and they've done a service in correcting what was a distorted portrait— 
However, the portrait that they've put forward is skewed in the other direction. Okay. My sense is that if they see grace, either the term or the concept, present, they conclude, aha, no difference with Paul on that point. But as you say, it's not enough to see grace. You've got to scratch below the surface and say, well, is it Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank? And if it's Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank, then on New Testament terms, that doesn't cut it. All right. And this hasn't remained just an academic debate. This has actually found its way into the life of the Church, So that which leads to the next question. Why should the listener, who maybe hasn't read Sanders— maybe hasn't even read Tom Wright, Mm -hmm. maybe seen him on public television or Mm -hmm. CNN or something defending around Easter time. We can probably expect to see Tom Wright defending the resurrection, uh, who looks like a good guy. Why why should the listener be concerned about this issue? Well, I think for this reason that, as I said, there are many in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, and by many I'm thinking of seminary students and elders and ministers— who are reading right appreciatively across the board, and in my judgment have not read him with a critical eye on the question of justification. And so this makes its way out into the local church, and people just need to be aware that this is something that they could encounter. I'm not saying they're going to encounter it Sunday. They may never encounter it, but it is in the air, and I think it's the responsibility of the informed layperson to be aware of it and to be on the lookout for it so that they can guard themselves and and guard their families. And there are people who aren't wearing big signs saying, you know, I'm a new perspective guy, Mm -hmm. who have embraced these premises, and they've redefined what Paul says. When, When Paul mentions the phrase or uses the phrase works of the law, They've redefined that phrase to Mm -hmm. mean Jewish ceremonial law. Mm -hmm. And so their understanding of what Paul is saying is quite different from what, for example, the Westminster Confession says or what our theologians have said or what, for example, the, the, the PCA General Assembly said in 2007 in dealing with Uh, some issues that have developed from the new perspectives, their understanding is quite different. And so um, they are comfortable with suggesting, for example, that you get into the covenant community by grace through baptism, Mm -hmm. and you are, in a sense, justified in a way that's analogous to the new perspectives on Paul, and you're even united to Christ— and you have to do your part in the covenant, and if you don't do your part in the covenant, you could fall away and lose those benefits that were given to you in baptism. And by the way, we don't have to worry about you know teaching works salvation because works of the law don't really apply here because that was then, that mm-hmm. was a specific question that's not really on the table anymore. And, and, and so th- I think I'm describing a situation that that actually exists. Mm-hmm. Am I missing something? You are not, and I've I've encountered this teaching. Uh, this this teaching has been uh, broadcast in the local church, so that this isn't something that's confined to seminary classrooms or, or ministerial fraternals, things of that nature. It comes across the pulpit. It comes across the pulpit, and you know the pattern of religion that you've just described. I think that's a fair characterization of uh, what some. Uh, in our circles or out there teaching. It seems to me to be in its main lines a a medieval pattern of religion, as though the Reformation hadn't happened. And what's so troubling 
is whatever good intentions may lie back of that is you don't have the imputed righteousness of Christ as the sole basis of our pardon and acceptance as righteous before a holy God. And if you don't have that in place, uh, then what in the world is left? This movement has a name, by the way, and they've given themselves a name. Mm-hmm. They, about 2002, there was a conference in uh, Auburn, Louisiana, or Monroe, Louisiana, at Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church, and they called themselves at that conference the Federal Vision. And so the movement that you and I are now describing mm-hmm. within the uh, Nay Park that is uh, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Churches, uh, that movement is called the Federal Vision. They call themselves the Federal Vision, and it has a, a lot of features to it, more than we can describe here in the time that we have, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly they teach a baptismal union with Christ, uh, a conditional covenant that's created in baptism, a mm-hmm. uh, baptismal election that is conferred on you, a conditional election, a conditional justification, adoption, justification, and it's conditioned on your faithfulness and perseverance, and, mm-hmm. it, and it could be lost. Coming along with that in many cases is... Hato communion, that is infant communion. Um, sometimes uh, uh, some of the proponents of this movement have um, argued that, you know, we need to stop talking about the imputation of anything. Mm-hmm. They've said that explicitly, and some of them have even said we, we certainly need to stop talking about the merits of mm-hmm. Christ. Why, why the animus, do you think, Guy, against the notion of the merits of Christ? Well, that's a great question, Scott, and I've, I've often wondered why that's so. And my suspicion is, uh, put it this way, I, I see a certain theme in the writings of theirs that I've encountered. They, they seem very uncomfortable with what's often labeled as uh, forensic and contractual. It's dismissed as cold and impersonal, and they're looking for something that's relational uh, for something that's personal, and I think it's thought, and uh, Ryan himself has rhetoric in, in this vein, that uh, imputed righteousness, merit, that's a cold piece of business. Mm. And th- the problem is— We're doing your part of the covenant. How, um, how, how relational is that? I mean, if you, have mm-hmm. a, if you have a conditional, historical, temporary you know, union with Christ, justification, uh, adoption that mm-hmm. you have to retain— I don't see exactly, and maybe you can clarify this for me, how is that relational and not legal? Mm-hmm. If somebody gives me a million dollars and says I can keep it if I do my part, um, you could call that relational, but that sounds like a contract to me. Well, that's right. and and I'm just a historian. What do I know? Well, your listeners, think of it this way. Uh, which is more relational? If, if we stand with where Protestants have historically been, uh, and confessionally, we we affirm justification by faith alone. I know that that is the provision of the Father's love, and I am assured uh, that the Father will love me and care for me, and in His wisdom, His power, His goodness will be engaged for His glory and for my good uh, so long as, as I'm on this earth and beyond. Uh, contrast that with what you've described— I'm forever uncertain about whether God loves me or not. I'm forever certain about whether I am accepted or will be accepted. 
ask which is more relational of the two. And I think you'll see the the false dichotomy between legal and relational uh, disappear. In seeking to deliver the church from the introspective conscience of the West, the new perspectives on Paul— and especially as that work has been appropriated by the so-called self-described federal vision movement, has actually plunged us back into the introspective conscience of the West. That's right. And in fact, the Reformation delivered us by returning to Paul's original context and original intent, and Peter's, and John's, and Jesus— and thereby delivered us from the introspective conscience, because the confessional Protestant knows that he or she is right before God on the basis of what Christ did for me, and now is confident that the Holy Spirit, as a, as a consequence of what Christ mm-hmm. did for me, is now at work in me, testifying to me that everything that is promised to believers is really true. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, you know, when it puts a whole different cast on good works, doesn't it? Because uh, justification by faith alone is a powerful motive to good works. And the believer, once he or she becomes aware, sensible of what's true of them, what the Father, Son, and Spirit have done for them, uh, it, it's the most powerful motive uh, for living in gratitude, thankfulness uh, f- for what's been done. On the other hand, and and I've I've thought about this often when you you read the writings of folk in the Federal Vision and when you read the writings of N. T. Wright, where so much importance is invested in good works, you're always asking the question. At least I'm asking the question. Well, what's a good work, and how good is good enough, hmm. and I've never sensed any party wrestle with that question enough. But if you're trying to live in this system, if that's your Christianity, that's the question you're going to be wrestling with. And you're going to be concerned with good works, all right, but not how can I do them in order to please my Redeemer, uh, in order to live as one who's bound doubly to my Creator and my Redeemer. Hmm. But you're going to be concerned with good works— Am I going to make the bar? How will I know? And strangely, you get no guidance in uh, their writings to answer that question. In conversations that I've had with proponents of the federal vision, what they have said to me is, Mm -hmm. God looks at your good works and he reckons them according to your intent and uh, according to your best efforts. And what's remarkable about that is that it's exactly what uh, uh, certain medieval schools said that mm. to those who do what lies within them, mm. God does not deny grace. In other words, God helps those who help themselves. That's how Ben Franklin put it. Mm-hmm. And these guys have reconstituted the medieval doctrine of congruent merit, thereby effectively lowering the standard, the bar. One of the reasons why you, Guy, are worried about meeting the bar is because you think it's fixed. But what the federal visionist has done is he's lowered the bar, and it turns out God grades on a curve, Hmm. and now you're on the hook to do your best. But still, now think of this. How do you know, Guy, that you did your best? Mm -hmm. Maybe it wasn't your best. Maybe you need to try a little harder for it to be your best. Hmm. And you see, even with congruent merit, you're really not off the hook. It sounds good Mm -hmm. until you try to do it. That's right. 
Well, if That's you right. if you want to know more about this, uh, Guy has edited, as I mentioned at the top of the program, with with uh, Gary Johnson, a terrific collection of essays dealing with this directly. And it's by faith alone, answering challenges to the doctrine of justification. You can also see his volume, Justification and the New Perspectives on Paul, and then the volume, The Federal Vision, Federal Vision and Covenant Theology. And they're all in the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. And you might also be interested in a volume I edited called Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry. These are essays by the faculty of Westminster Seminary, California. And these volumes are all aimed directly at these issues. And you can tell how in a sense, how complex they are. It took three <laughs> three volumes uh, between the two of us and all the people in t- involved in them to uh, to try to address all these things. But these are, are by and large, readable essays, accessible, and there's a, a lot of material on the web. Westminster Seminary California has published a statement on this, and you can find that on our website at wscal.edu. Well, we're so thankful that you're here, Guy. We're so thankful for the excellent work that you've done on these issues uh, the leadership that you've provided, not only on an academic level uh, relative to publishing, but also your work on an ecclesiastical level, uh, leading the the visible church on this issue. Well, Scott, thank you for your time. I so appreciate being with you and your audience today. It's great to be back in San Diego. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Clark. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. Thanks to Young Lee for graphics and Adam Klaus for technical assistance. You can hear all the previous episodes of Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours. Click on Office Hours under Westminster Audio. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Office Hours in iTunes or at wscal.edu slash officehours. Write us at officehours at wscal.edu. Call us at 760-278-1725. Leave a message and we may use it in a future broadcast. For more information about Office Hours or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.